We're going to be in Luke chapter 8 uh, this morning, verses 40 through 56, the end of the chapter. And as you kind of uh, get there in your Bibles or whatever, uh, just want to let you know uh, the marketing plan for Redemption Hill. And uh, we don't have one. You are our marketing plan. Uh, we send out a mailer every week to all of your neighbors in the form of you being sent back home from here. And uh, to all of your coworkers, we've we have we have precisely uh, located them by locating you, and we've sent you back to your coworkers and to your neighbors, to your family, to your friends. Uh, you are the marketing plan of your church, and uh, you are the mailer. You are the you are the social media uh, invite. You are the invite card. It's you, and so I uh, just wanted to fill you in, make you aware of that. Uh, we release you, we send you, we commission you, uh, and let, let me just tell you this, not to invite people back to church every week. We commission you and send you out every week to make disciples, uh, to make disciples of your friends and your family members and your coworkers. You do that by loving them, by sharing Jesus with them, by sharing the gospel with them. And uh, I would, uh, as well, all the elders of Redemption Hill would encourage you, uh, before you invite someone to come and worship here with us, we'd encourage you to have a meal with them first. Invite them into your house. Invite some of your friends here from Redemption Hill with you to go and eat with them so that they can get to know them, so that when they do come through the doors uh, in response to that amazing marketing plan, uh, that they would know some people's names and some people would know them. So just wanted to remind you of that. You are the marketing plan. Uh, but it's not so much about marketing, it's way, way more about making disciples. That's our aim, and that's what we want to see happen, that's what we're praying for. Uh, one of the things I've been praying for lately for you is that uh, you would see people come to faith in Jesus Christ on your couch and around your kitchen table um, in your homes. That's what we're praying for every single day. Uh, if you haven't noticed, we don't really do a lot of altar calls around here, um, and that's why we're praying that those altars would be made in your homes, they'd be made around your kitchen tables, at your buffets, uh, around your kitchen sink or your stove, and on your couch, um, that uh, the floors kind of in your living rooms would be worn out a little bit by knees getting down on the floor together and praying for each other, for your friends, for your neighbors as you watch as they come to faith in Jesus Christ. How awesome is that going to be? Amen. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. So if you know some people that aren't looking to be entertained but just need the gospel preached faithfully every week, uh, this is the place to be. We're going to literally read this together and walk through verse by verse together after that and kind of break it down. So let's get the whole picture here in verses 40 through 56 of chapter 8. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and although she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? 
When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is life and bread for us today. Lord, we, we come expecting, for we know that man should not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. And so, God, we come today expecting you to speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're here in Luke. We're in chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. The first verse says uh, that Jesus returned. So where was he returning from? We just uh, last week dealt with the passage of Scripture where he had gone across the Sea of Galilee to a Gentile area called the Gerasenes. They literally had driven him away because he had cast out thousands of demons out of this one man. They'd gone into these pigs that they were raising as a living. The pigs, being filled with demons, went off the cliff and drowned uh, into the Sea of Galilee. And these men came trembling in fear and literally begged Jesus to go away from them. And so Jesus is coming back uh, across the Sea of Galilee into the Galilean district. And we see that there are some people waiting for him there. Uh, Before we dive into this, I I just want to remind us why we're here. We're literally walking verse by verse through the book of Luke. Why? So that we can get a picture, a view of our Savior, of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes and he says that it is by beholding Him who is Christ, the glory of the Lord, that we are changed from one degree of glory to another. And so if we're going to be changed, if we're going to receive the gospel message, we need to see our Savior. We need to behold Him, and beholding Him, we are trusting and believing that God, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, is going to change us as we look at Jesus, so that we can then get into the New Testament teachings of Paul and the other apostles and already have a view of this gospel that they're talking about when they refer to Jesus. We want to know what that is. And Luke writes, and in chapter 1, verse 4, Luke says he is writing specifically so that those who hear and read, specifically Theophilus, whom he is writing to, may have here we go, certainty concerning the things that he had been taught about Jesus. This is what I know for a fact. 
the vast majority, if not all of us in this room this morning, and I'm just kind of taking an account, and I can say with certainty that all of us here this morning have been taught some things about Jesus. We've all been taught different things about Jesus. And depending on where that was coming from and, and whom we receive that from, we may or may not have some certainty about those things we've been taught. And that's why it's important for us to go to the book of Luke, to behold Jesus, and just like Luke is writing to Theophilus for, we can receive certainty concerning the things we've been taught about Jesus. We want to make sure that the things that we have been taught about him actually line up with the gospel record and what has been written as inspired by the Holy Spirit for us to see Jesus. That's why we are here. And I don't know about you guys, but this has been awesome for me. It has been so awesome to just take this like slow, long, panoramic view of, of Jesus and really start to take it in. And I'm, I'm finding that as we walk through this, I'm, I'm seeing more of Jesus' heart. It's not just the, the life and times of Jesus in this drive-by, but really as we're slowly, methodically, systematically moving through this book, I'm finding I'm being drawn not just to what my Savior did, but who He was, His heart. One of the things that we keep coming back to, and we're going to come back to again today, it's not just his ability, it was his authority. And his ability sprung from his authority, but it wasn't just that he had the authority and the ability to do these things, it was that he had the compassion to do these things. That's one of the things that I'm being drawn to. And I would encourage you as you journal through your notes over as we walk through Luke, as you read and pray and study as we go through the week, write down those things that you're being drawn to about the heart of your Savior. Write those things that, that you're noticing that you hadn't noticed about Jesus before. And uh, I don't know about you. This is touching me. I, I pray that it is uh, impacting you as well. So here we go. I want you real quick, um, as we dive into this this morning, one kind of key thing that I'm seeing in here. We've got Jarius, father, only daughter, 12 years old, dying. And, and he's a ruler of the synagogue, which means that he's a man of some means. Uh, he, is, he is an upstanding member of the community. He's well-trusted and well-respected. And and here he is, and he is desperate. One of the reasons we know he's desperate is he's running to Jesus, which means he has exhausted any other means by which to bring wellness to his daughter, and he is desperate. And then we see the woman with the issue of blood. It's interesting. Jairus' daughter is 12 years old, and this woman has been battling this issue of blood for 12 years. Years For as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has been battling this disease. And again, she is desperate. What did it say? It said she had spent all her living trying to find a cure, and she had found none. Now, five years ago, um, I would have taught this passage of Scripture, and I would have honed in on Jairus and this woman's desperation. And I would have pointed to their desperation and said, you've got to be desperate. And I cringe. I cringe that that would have been my, my bent towards pointing at this because I would have viewed this as a prescription rather than a description. 
And it's important as we dig into this that we remember that what Luke is giving for us is a, an historical record, which means what? It is a description of events that have transpired, not a prescription for how our lives are supposed to be or how they will be, right? Not every 12-year-old little girl was raised from the dead. Not every woman with a disease was healed, but this 12-year-old little girl was and this woman was. And so this is a description of events, not a prescription for how our lives are meant to be. And so we need to come at the text in the literary style that it is written in, which is an historical record, and we need to receive it as a description of what has happened, but more accurately, a portrayal of Christ. And the key here is not the desperation with which they came to Jesus. That is a fact of the matter. The key is the faith with which they came to Jesus in. And I will harp on this now until the day I die. And where does faith come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. So the faith that they were coming in to Jesus was a faith that had been given to them by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't something that they drummed up or pulled up out of their heart. I'm just going to believe. I'm going to believe. This is not Disney fairy tales. This is not think a happy thought and maybe Jesus will give you some pixie dust and you can fly. That's not what this is about. This is about God on his own, by his own will, of his unction, determining to give a gift of faith to those whom he has chosen. And here, it's Jairus, and it's this woman with the issue of blood. What's beautiful about this is that God gives Jairus the faith, but it's the daughter that gets the healing. In the other instance, it's the woman whom God has given the faith to believe, and she receives a healing as well. So let's, let's walk through this. Um, I want you to see that faith is greater than desperation. There are some times that we are going to be desperate in our lives, but God is not going to respond to our desperation. He's going to respond to the faith that he has given us to believe. Okay? Um, so I want you to see that faith is greater than desperation, and desperation is not equal to faith. And so my prayer today is that God would let our faith fuel our desperation and let our desperation not be for what the giver gives us, but our desperation would be for the giver himself, that we would seek the heart of the giver and not only his hand. Amen? That's my prayer this morning. Uh, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. See the, the pairing that Luke does here by juxtaposing the crowd from the garrisons driving Jesus away and the crowd from Galilee sitting there waitingly, uh, expectantly, waitingly, for, expectantly waiting for Jesus to come and receiving him. There's this, this juxtaposition of the welcome here against the garrisons driving Jesus away way in fear. You see, the garrisons were afraid. Why? Because Jesus showed up, and when Jesus shows up, sometimes things get messy. Let me tell you something. Pigs are messy on their own, but when 2,000 of them careen off a cliff and all drown at the same time and are now dead and floating on the beach, um, that's a mess. 
Not only that, but now you have uh, some, some herders, I guess, of pigs, some breeders, raisers. What, Dad, what would you call raisers of pigs? Farmers. Okay. Pig farmers. You have some pig farmers. You have some pig farmers whose livelihood was dependent on these 2,000 pigs. Let me tell you, that's a lot of pigs. Even by today's standards, that is a lot of pigs. And now their livelihood is gone, right? And so Jesus shows up, and sometimes things get a little messy. Sometimes things don't go the way that you would hope it would. And now here's this man who has been healed, but now also Jesus tells him, go and proclaim it. But while he goes and proclaims it, he's also going to be marked. Yeah, that's the guy that used to be full of demons. But our lives were a lot better when he was shackled up in the graveyard because now we don't have a livelihood anymore. This is the guy that when he got healed, took our livelihood away. And so there is this hardening to what Jesus was doing, right? The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And there are sometimes that people will be hardened to the gospel. There are sometimes that people will be softened to the gospel. Um, all through the rest of the book of Luke, uh, several weeks ago, Daniel did a great job of preaching through the parable of the sower and talking about the different soils of people's hearts. And all through the rest of the book of Luke, we're going to get to see those different hearts portrayed in the people. And so with the Gerasenes, what do we find? We find a lot of rocky soil where God came and did something miraculous. The seed was planted and then the birds come and steal the seed away and it's not able to go deep down into the ground. Now Jesus goes and we see this juxtaposition. Let me tell you something. Jesus wants to redeem and heal and show himself to be enough for us in all the different areas of our lives. Jesus may show up and take your livelihood away. But can I tell you something? That when your livelihood is taken away, if you will not stiff arm him, but rather welcome him, you'll find that Jesus is enough for you, even when your livelihood has been taken away. Your, your friends may reject you because of the change in your life, but if you will embrace your Savior rather than stiff arm Him, you will find that even when your friends reject you, you have a Savior who also was rejected, who will be enough for you in that moment. But in order for that to happen, what we need is we need the Holy Spirit to override our desire for control and cause us to surrender. Remember, soil, what can soil do for itself? Nothing. It can't expel the rocks. It can't cast out the weeds. It needs someone to come and care for that soil. And we have someone. We have someone, a great high priest, who will come and will tend that soil if we will surrender to him. And so sometimes we need the Holy Spirit to override our desire for control because when we lose our livelihood or we see our friends reject us, what does that do? It causes us to, to, to start to, you know, get a little verklempt and you want to you get in there, you want to grab what you can for yourself. But what we need is we need the Holy Spirit to override our desire for control, to surrender Him and say, God, I know that even when, I know that everything could be taken from me. 
But as long as I have you, I know that I have everything that I need. Amen? Uh, the Gerasenes didn't see that. Uh, we'll find out who does. Remember the soil. Uh, and so we see this crowd waiting for him. It's the same crowd from verse 4 and verse 19, the Galileans welcoming Jesus. They've been waiting for him. Uh, my prayer is that uh, as we dig into our Bibles throughout the week, as we gather here as a family on Sunday mornings, as we uh, gather together in smaller groups around tables, that, that we would come waiting expectantly for Jesus to come and visit with us, that we would uh, come to these gatherings and that there would be this expectation, this advent of expectation in our hearts that every time we come together, every time we go to the Word of God by ourselves or with two or three other people, that we would come expecting Jesus to speak to us. And because we're expecting, we're waiting for it, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're, you're going to see it. You know, if you come and, and you're just like, well, doing my thing, doing what I got to do, then you'll just do what you got to do. But if you come expecting God to show up and to speak to you, he's going to speak to you. Why? Because he loves you. You're his children, and he loves his children. You know what God desires more than anything else is an intimate relationship with his children. And so as you come today and we dig into the word of God, I pray that your mind is informed, as your mind is informed about the greatness and the majesty and the bigness of our God, that your heart would be inflamed with affection for him, that there would be a response in your heart as we get into communion here in a little while and we begin to worship our God together, that, that we would just begin to melt in the presence of a God who loves us and and. Even if you didn't come expecting to meet with him today, he is here expecting to meet with you. Amen. Verse 41. <laughs> We're really far into this so far. And so verse 41, there came a man, Jarius, who was a ruler of the synagogue. So here's this man. Like I said, he's an upstanding member of the community. He probably helped to plan and organize the worship in the synagogue, which means he, he's actually rubbing shoulders with some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees of that area. Um, he's an administrator. He, he comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus. What is this? This is an act of humility, of humbling himself before this man. And again, he is desperate. His only daughter. His only daughter. And you can see the love that he has for her. And yes, he is desperate, but hear this desperation as a description of what's going on here. And so what do we need to know about our own desperation? That God will meet us in our desperation, but he's responding to faith. God will meet us in our desperation, but he's responding in faith. And that is freeing. Why is that freeing? Because that means that you don't have to try and drum up some kind of emotion in order to manipulate God to listen to you. As if you could. <laughs> but we do that, don't we? There's, there's some lie that we have listened to that says that we can manipulate God into hearing our prayers or listening to us or responding to us. And so we, we try all kinds of different things. We'll try to be good little boys and girls for a little while and think if we just will be good little boys and girls for a little while and mind our P's and Q's and not swear as much and not drink as much and do these little things that we think that we shouldn't do that God will somehow listen to us in that moment. So 
What happens? Crisis of faith comes along. Things are going bad and people come to church. Why? Because they think if they come to church, they can manipulate God into listening to them. That's not how it works. Let me tell you what God responds to. He responds to faith. Believing him to be enough for them no matter what. Right? And we come to faith believing what? Believing that it is by no good thing that we have done but only because of the good that Christ has done for us that we can even be accepted anyways. And so this is freeing. Church, this is freeing. Not only do you not have the power to manipulate God anyways, duh, but we believe it. It's freeing because it says God is not responding to some kind of emotional fervor, but rather he is responding to the faith that he's already given you to believe. And so if you've got faith to believe God for healing, if you've got faith to believe God for something in your life, what does that mean? It means that God's already preparing, the, he's doing the groundwork to bring that about already. He's going to do it. And so we can believe him to do that. And we can believe him to be enough for us. And so again, faith is greater in desperation. Jesus is not acting in response to Jerry's desperation. He is desperate, but he's responding to his faith. Jerry's faith to come to Jesus, hear this church, Jerry's faith to come to Jesus is evidence of what very important fact? That the Father by the Holy Spirit drew Jerry's to Jesus and Jesus to Jerry's. This is a part of God's plan. This is a divine appointment for Jesus. It's not happenstance. Jesus had an appointment on the other side of the lake. He went. He did what the Father had told him to do with the demoniac. Work was done. People rejected him back in the boat, back to the other side of the lake. Why? Because God had another appointment for his son to meet Jairus and this woman along the way. And so we see here that the Father, by the Holy Spirit, drew Jairus to Jesus and Jesus to Jairus. The same Spirit would also lead Jesus to the cross. And from the cross to the grave, as we used to sing, and from the grave to the sky. Lord, we lift your name on high, right? The same Spirit that led, Jesus, that led Jairus to Jesus and Jesus to Jairus would lead Jesus all the way to completing the work that God had intended for him. And then all of a sudden we get to verse 42 and what happens? It's like, we've got an interruption. Jarius, desperate, daughter, dying, time is of the essence. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of this crowd, Jesus feels power go out from him and he stops everyone. And what, this is what I want you to see about verses 42 through 48 because I believe it's important for some of us here. And it's just a fact of this historical narrative. While Jesus is healing someone else, Jairus' daughter dies. While Jesus is healing someone else, Jairus' daughter dies. And it's interesting that the writer allows by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this interruption to remain here in this narrative rather than 
putting them in two separate accounts. I mean, he could have done that, right? And one day while we were going somewhere, this woman came and touched Jesus, him, the hem of Jesus' robe and he healed her. And one time this guy named Jairus came and his daughter was dying and Jesus went and he healed his daughter. He, he, I mean, he could have done that. But by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he includes these together in the way that it happened and what we get to see this interruption. And I believe it's important for us You see, because sometimes we see other people getting what we have long or so desperately desired. And we see someone else receive what we have wanted and prayed and longed for while we wait and wait and wait and sometimes wait and wait. Or we've longed for it so long and it seems like the moment is actually gone. There's no more waiting for it. The moment has passed. It's just too late. Watching other people get what you want is difficult. But just like we've been saying from the beginning this morning, that it's in the middle of that waiting and that difficulty that we find that Jesus is enough. He's enough. And a lot of times what happens is we wait and we wait and we wait and the moment passes us by and we abandon Jesus. But this is what I can tell you this morning is that he does not abandon us. He will not abandon you. Jesus will not abandon you. Though we remain faithless, he remains faithful. To the bitter end. But the end's not bitter with Jesus. And whether it's in this life or the next, He will cause all things to work together for good to them that love Him and are called according to His purpose, and all things will be for His glory. He will not abandon you. And Jarius, though we will see, they say, don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. Jesus will respond and not abandon Jairus in that moment, but will carry on with him even though his daughter has died. And Jairus receives a greater miracle from Jesus, but first he has to hear Jesus say, do not fear, only believe. She will be well. The Holy Spirit didn't lead you to me for nothing, just wait. It's difficult to wait on the Lord, but when it gets hard, look at his track record. One of the things that God did with the, with the Israelites in the Old Testament is he would have them build altars whenever God had done something in their lives. And then he told them that whenever they passed by these altars, that they with their children, if the wind or the weather had broken down these altars, that they should stop on their journey and take time together to rebuild these altars so that they remain. And so you can read the text of the Old Testament. There are even places where it will say faithfully, and they're still there to this day. Because God's people have been faithful to rebuild these altars. And as they rebuilt them with their children, their children would say, Well, Dad, what, is, what was this altar for? And he could say, Son, this altar is when God split the Red Sea and we walked across on dry land. 
Or this altar was when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. And so we need to look back in our lives. We need to build altars in our lives when God has done something in our lives so that we can look back over the track record, not of what we have done, but what God has done, and and allow our faith to be encouraged by his track record. Amen? When it gets difficult, do not fear, only believe Look at God's track record. God, give us eyes to see your hand in every mishap and mistake, in every trial and tribulation. Verse 43, so we get introduced to this this beautiful woman. This woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And the language here is reflective of Leviticus chapter 15. Which means that this woman uh, wasn't uh, just... Bleeding, she was menstruating for 12 years nonstop. Which means that everything that went along with that she had as well. This discharge of blood for 12 years. And if that wasn't enough, if the pain and the stigma of that wasn't enough, she had spent everything that she had looking for a cure and there was no one that was able to heal her. She also, like Jarius, is desperate. One of the things that that we see here is we we don't get to know a lot about the particulars of her life. We know she was a woman. We know that she had been menstruating for 12 years. We know that she had spent everything she had trying to find a cure. And we know that Jesus heals her, but that's about all we know. It's possible. It's possible that she was married. And because of the onset of this disease and the time that it took to be healed, that her husband, according to Mosaic law, served her with divorce papers. It was, it was lawful for a Jewish husband to just say, I'm done, and it's very possible that this happened. It could also be possible that she was never married, and the money that she had spent trying to find a cure was actually her dowry. Either way, what we know because of the nature of her disease is that she was incapable of bearing children. Incapable of bringing life into the world. Rather, she lived an ongoing death as egg after egg after egg after egg would be expelled from her body as she just continued to bleed. Um, Not only that... But according to Leviticus chapter 15, she was, according to Mosaic law, ceremonially unclean. What does this mean? It means everything that she touches becomes unclean. Everywhere that she sits or lies down becomes unclean. Anyone who touches her or she touches becomes unclean. And she is not allowed to go to the temple and to worship God. Completely cut off from worship, which in Jewish culture means she was cut off from God, completely cut off from society because, you know, people can handle it if you're sick for a little bit. But the longer you're sick, the longer you find out which of your friends are going to stick around to the end. Which of your friends are going to risk having to spend seven days of ceremonially being unclean every time that they come in contact with you. 
being cut off from the temple that week just because they wanted to give you a hug or come and sit at your table. I mean, this woman is going through more than just pain, and she's desperate. It's, it's very clear that she, even if she was married, she never had a son before she had her disease, because if she had had a son, that son would have been charged to care for his mother. She is alone. And she stalks Jesus through the crowd. She's hoping to do this secretly. But notice the difference between Jairus and this woman as you look at the whole picture and the healings to come. Jairus comes publicly before Jesus. And as we find out at the end, what happens, the healing is done almost completely in secret. But this woman comes hoping to hide herself and come secretly before the Lord, and Jesus makes her healing public. Her issue of blood is a shame to her. Uh, anyone that she touches in the crowd is, unbeknownst to them, now ceremonially unclean. <laughs> Which is why the Israelites had sacrifices for sins they didn't even know they had committed. <laughs> right? And this has become her sole identity. She is the woman with the issue of blood. I mean, even for us and in our Bibles, she is the woman with the issue of blood. This has become her identity and her one goal was to rid herself of it. But now depleted and despairing, she hears Jesus is coming by. And just imagine... Right? She, she's done everything she can. She's gone to every doctor. They've tried everything. We don't know if they tried cauterizing her. We don't know what methods of rudimentary medicinal uh, practices were practiced on her. We don't know, but none of it has worked. And she hears Jesus is coming by. And, and, and just imagine, perhaps, perhaps he's the one. He, he must be the one. He has to be the one. Why? Because I have nothing left, nowhere to turn. I must turn to Jesus. Now, faith is greater than desperation, but God will sometimes use our desperation to bring faith to us. And there are times that God will allow us to be stripped down to nothing because it's when we realize that we have nothing to give that we can receive everything from God. It's when we come to that point when we realize that we, there's nothing that I have to offer, which means what? It's all of grace. It's all of grace. Because then everything that God does is completely, completely goes to His credit. It completely goes to his credit, to his glory, that he is good and his love endures forever. That he is the one that gets the glory, great things he has done. And so she comes to him in secret. Her conditions rendered her ceremonially unclean, like we said, cut off from worship and society. She meets Jesus, and again, what happens? She touches Jesus. Is Jesus made ceremonially unclean? No, because the moment she touches him, she becomes 
clean. Just like when Jesus touches the funeral pyre of the man who had died, he doesn't become unclean. Why? Because it went from funeral pyre to uh, a litter (laughs) where they're just carrying a live man. When Jesus touches unclean things, he doesn't become unclean. They become clean. When he touches dead things, they don't... They don't stay dead, they become alive. When he touches things that are not pure, they become pure. And so we say, raise us, O God, from the dead. Cleanse us and purify us, for you are the only one who can. Amen? And so Jesus stops. He says, who touched me? And notice here that she still desires to remain hidden. Why? Because her identity has been grounded in her shame of being this woman with the issue of blood. She desires to remain hidden, but Jesus doesn't allow it. Isn't that kind of a jerk thing to do? I mean, all my life I've heard that Jesus is a gentleman. That he won't do anything against what you want to do. And yet, Adam didn't ask to be born He told Noah what to do. Abraham was a loser and God just chose him because he was a loser and said, you're coming with me. Peter, James, and John, they they had their life going on. But he says, no, come follow me. They didn't ask. He said, you're coming. Let's go. Literally kicks Paul off of his donkey, blinds him, and yet we still want to, you know, praise our free will. And yet even people who praise their free will come to me and say, Pastor, won't you pray that God will open up my friend's heart to the gospel? Whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We don't want to infringe on anybody's free will here. And yet, yes, we do. (laughs) Yes, we do. Praise God, he does. Jesus doesn't allow it. And he's not being a jerk. This isn't an unloving thing to do. This is the most loving thing that he can do because I want you to see what he does here. He says, power has gone out from me. So he asks who touched me. She still remains hidden. She, she along with everyone else, denies, no, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Peter's like, um, Jesus, you see this crowd? We're bunched in like sardines here. We're all touching each other up in here. What do you mean, who touched me? And what does Jesus say? He says, power went out from me. And what is that for this woman? It's confirmation. She felt the healing. And I wonder, all the money that she spent, all the different procedures that she went through, were there moments of time where it would stop for a moment? Were there times where where it would stop just for a little while. She'd wake up in the morning and and perhaps be dry, and that's when the countdown clock starts. Why? Because Leviticus chapter 15 says that even once she is healed, she has to go through seven days of purification before she can present herself to the priest for the atoning sacrifice to be uh, given before she can be declared clean again. Imagine. Imagine if there were times that that... Flow stopped. The countdown clock starts. And one day goes by. And two days go by. And three days go by. And four days go by. And five days go by. And six days go by. And she just has one more day before she can go to the temple. Before the sacrifice can be given. And she can be declared clean. And then all of a sudden she feels 
She feels that flow of blood come again. How heartbreaking that must have been. I wonder how many times she went through that. And even as she reached out and she felt the hem of his robe and she felt the blood stop, but yet, I mean, come on, to still doubt and wonder and go, I mean, is this coincidence? Is it, is it for real? Is it going to last? Is, it, is this it? And what does Jesus say? Power. I felt power go out from me. Now, she's been going to him because she believes he is the Son of God. He's the one. He's the Messiah. And to hear him say those words is confirmation, not only of who he is, but that her healing is complete. What a grace. What a grace that Jesus gave to her by not allowing her to slip away undetected out of the crowd. But then it gets even better. So once he says that, she comes trembling. Verse 47, it's Jesus And she's been healed, but also everyone that she has touched has been rendered unclean. I wonder when she causes, I wonder when Jesus causes this sheet full of unclean animals to come before Peter, and he says, do not call unclean what I have called clean in the book of Acts. I wonder if Peter remembers this day where he watched Jesus make something that was unclean, clean. She's been delivered She's been discovered and she declares, she openly confesses what she did and why and what had happened. And Jesus says these words to her in verse 48. What does he say? He says, daughter. Which means what? Jesus is giving her a new identity. Her identity was woman with the issue of blood, but now her identity is what? Daughter. John 1.12, for as many as received Christ, to them gave he the power to become the sons and the daughters of God. What has happened here is that her faith to be healed was not only a faith for healing, it was a salvific faith. She had been regenerated by the Holy Spirit to believe in the Messiah, that he was in fact not just Jesus, the son of Mary of Nazareth, but he was Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one of God. He gives her a new identity. And what does he say? He says, your faith has made you sozo. (laughs) That's not what it says in your English Bible. It's what it says in the Greek. It's the same word that Jesus used with the demoniac across the lake. And it it carries with it a deeper meaning than just being made well. It speaks to the inner wellness, the holistic wellness of this daughter of God. She has not only been healed, she has been redeemed. Praise God. According to Leviticus 15, again, atonement still needs to be made for her uncleanness. But here Jesus says, your faith has saved you in, in a way that almost that atonement has, in a sense, already been accomplished. Praise be to the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Amen? Praise be to the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth that we have a God who exists outside of space and time. We have a God who said, it is by faith that you will be made righteous, not by works lest any man should boast. And Adam and Noah and Abraham and Daniel and David and Solomon and all of these sinners through the Old Testament, they were declared righteous before they died through faith in the one that would come. Job, possibly one of the oldest uh, written records of the Bible, says in Job, and I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. 
She has received more than healing. This woman has received spiritual salvation through faith in Christ. And it was not her desperation. It was her faith which had been given to her by the Holy Spirit. Her heart believed by faith in the good news of Jesus. And what does he do? He calls her daughter, adopted into the family of faith. Praise God. What do we see here? We see her then giving her testimony. She's confessing in front of all of the congregation, if you will, the assembly. And her testimony not only strengthened them, but it strengthened the church for over 2,000 years. Right here we see the gospel creating community that lives on mission. Right in the middle of this text. And Jesus says to her, go in peace, which really is to say, live from your new identity. Go from here, not as the woman with the issue of blood. Go from here as the daughter of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The just shall live by faith, or those who have been justified, i.e. declared righteous and clean through what? What did she need? What was the only thing she was lacking? To To be declared righteous? The atoning sacrifice. What did Jesus come to bring? The atoning sacrifice. We are declared righteous through the atoning sacrifice of Christ for us and on our behalf for every believer from Adam onward through to the end when the true sons and daughters of God will be revealed through faith. Romans chapter 8 verse 19. We get done with this interruption and um, we see a messenger come, the kind of messenger that you want to shoot. <laughs> how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, and how dead is the person who brings bad news, right? What does he say? He says to Jarius, while Jesus was busy with someone else, your daughter died. Don't bother the teacher anymore. I wonder how many of us still go through the motions. We come here, we sing the songs, we, we do what we do because we know that's what we're supposed to do, but there's a, a part of our heart. There's a part of our heart that has been hardened and we say, I'm not going to bother the teacher anymore. My, moments, my moment has passed and I'll, I'll carry on and I'll do what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not going to bother the teacher anymore. Oh, that God, oh, that God would speak to our hearts this morning the words that he speaks to Jarius. Words filled with compassion and grace and understanding. Do not fear. Only believe. She will be well. And those words can come in many different forms. It can be, do not fear. Only believe I am enough. Do not fear. Only believe I'll be with you. Do not fear, only believe. This is not the end. But oh, that God would speak to our hearts today the words that he spoke to Jairus. Do not fear, only believe. And that the Holy Spirit would give us faith to believe in that moment. You see, the messenger only saw Jesus as a teacher, not the Son of God. A teacher who maybe was special. But Jairus' daughter was dead, and no matter how special a teacher was, 
There's nothing that just a teacher could do for a dead little girl. Praise God, Jesus is more than just a teacher. And so for a weary man, desperate for his only daughter, he receives these words, do not fear, only believe she will be well, and he proceeds to bother the teacher a little longer. And Jesus doesn't abandon him, but he goes with him. And this is in no way a contradiction to reality. Even when Jesus gets to the house and he says, you know, she's, she's just sleeping. It's, it's not a contradiction of reality, but faith is not blind to reality. It just trusts in something bigger. And I want you to hear me something here, church. We do not simply have a faith. We have a God. We do not simply have a faith. We have a God. And the God that we have is the God whom our faith is in. So we have a faith in a God. We have a God whom our faith is in. A God who exists outside of time and space and in it at the same time. A creator who reigns sovereignly and supremely over everything. Let us not lose the mystery and the mysticism of what we believe. That we have a God who is able. We have a God who is able. And even if he chooses not to fill in the blank, we can say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we will not bow to your idols or our doubts or to the world's culture or our own desires. Why? Because we have a God whom our faith is in, and that faith believes even in the face of disappointment. That's the kind of faith that we want. If that's the kind of faith that we're going to have, that means that we need to have a framework to hang our suffering on, because we will suffer. And the only framework strong enough to hold our suffering and to give us joy in the midst of that reality is if our faith is in a God whose bigness and majesty and sovereignty is bigger than all of our problems and our suffering. A God who loves us and who is in control and gives us not what we want, but what we need. Gives us not what we want, but what works together for our good and for His glory. If we're going to have a framework to hang our suffering on, it means that we need to have a high, high view of God and a long, long view of eternity. We need to, as Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 2, to set our minds on things above and not on earthly things. We need to be able to understand, as the prophet would write in the Old Testament, that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We need to remember that we are meant to be as Paul and Barnabas, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 10, that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That there will be things and trials and things, but we are pressed but not crushed. We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You see, church, there is a place, a very small place, a very small platform between desperation and despair. There's a very small platform between desperation and despair. But it's on that platform that God meets his children. 
It's on that platform between desperation and despair that God meets his children and he will either bring joy through providing what is lacking materially or he will bring joy through providing himself and showing you his glory in making himself enough for you in those moments. And those who have gone through suffering and have experienced that can say with me, amen. You see, once our minds are informed to see the greatness and the bigness and the majesty of our God, our hearts, affections can be inflamed to rejoice in him. That's what we sang about the very first song this morning. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's a high view of God and a long view of eternity. John Piper would say that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And so we move quickly now to the end. Verse 51, Jesus allows only the three closest of his disciples, PJ and J. Peter, James, and John to come into the house. Why? Because they're about to enter into an atmosphere of disbelief. We see in verse 53 some weeping turn into laughing, but the transition from weeping into laughing that we see there is not the kind of weeping turning into laughter that the gospel brings. It's a weeping turned into laughter that unbelief brings. It's the same kind of laughter that Sarah laughs when she hears the word that she will bring forth a son to the glory of God and for the seed of Israel. It's in laughter of unbelief and it's not the kind of mourning turning into joy that the gospel brings. Verse 54, Jesus again, we see what? His ability springs from his authority. And when he acts, he acts in compassion. He takes her hand. She's dead. She's dead. Ceremonially unclean, Jesus takes her, head, her hand. And again, what is unclean becomes clean. What's dead becomes alive. The bad news becomes untrue and the good news reigns supreme. He says, child, arise. Her spirit returns. Jesus raises her from the dead. Can, can we just acknowledge something here? If, if this isn't true, we are all whack jobs. But if this is true, it's the greatest news on earth that we serve and worship and have been welcomed by a king who has the authority, the ability, and the compassion to raise the dead. Paul would argue in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that there, if there is no resurrection, that Jesus himself has not been resurrected. Can you see the grace of God in allowing Jesus not to keep the resurrection for some kind of 
crescendo of Jesus' mission, but rather we see Jesus raise not just one, not just two, but multiple people from the dead before he gets raised. Because if only he had been raised, maybe it was a fluke. Maybe we could say it didn't really happen. Maybe the disciples really did hide his body and Jesus is buried somewhere. But I'm telling you, there were people that Jesus had raised from the dead that were still living when Jesus was raised from the dead who were able to stand up and say, I don't know about Jesus, but let me tell you what happened to me. I know you want to sing about being lost and found and blind, but now you see, but I was dead and now I'm alive. Now that's some amazing grace. That's some amazing grace. And that's the Jesus we believe in. That's the Jesus, well, let me not speak for all of you. That's the Jesus I believe in. I believe in a Jesus who raises the dead. I believe in a Jesus who is able to step into any situation and bring life out of our death. Twelve years, it doesn't matter. Thousands of demons, it doesn't matter. The arms of my God are not too short to reach unto salvation. And there is no one, there is no one too far because God is close. He is close. Interestingly, in verse 56, he says to tell no one. Now, he tells the demoniac, go tell everybody. But here he says, don't tell anyone. What's, what's the difference? Just for context as we continue to move through the book. The demon, the demoniac man was in the Gerasenes, which is a Gentile area. But Jarius is a ruler in the synagogue, rubbing shoulders with Pharisees and Sadducees, who have all kinds of mixed up and mistaken expectations about who the Messiah ought to be. And Jesus is on a mission. And there's nothing that is going to keep him away from the bullseye target of that cross. It was the plan from the beginning. Jesus is the fruit of the tree of life. And all who partake in him will never die, but will be brought to everlasting life and communion with our Father. And so we end today with communion to partake, as it were, of our Savior to be reminded that God has, through His Son, invited us into a close and intimate father-child relationship with Him. Can I just be real with you guys for a minute? I have um, I've been in church since I was three days old. You've probably heard this before, but I was born on Barksdale Air Force Base in Bossier, Louisiana. Air Force requirements said I had to be in the hospital for three days with my mom. Day four, we were in church. Been in church all my life. I've been teaching nearly every Sunday since I was nine years old. But in that, it has been difficult for me to see myself as a child rather than a servant. And I want to serve God with all my heart. 
for the rest of my life, but I want to serve him as a son. I mean, a servant would be enough. But that's not what he's welcomed us into. And how tragic would it be for a son whose father has welcomed him home and said, no, 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 you're my son. You're my son. And for the son to say, no, no, dad. It's okay. Put the robe away. Put the ring away. Don't bother about the calf for me. I'll go sleep in the barn and I'll keep cleaning out stalls. I mean, it'd be enough. But it's blasphemy. I continue to pray that God would help me to understand my identity as a son. Here as we dig into this passage and we see him utter those words to that woman, daughter, a new identity in church. If you have come to faith in Christ, you have not been made a servant or a slave. You've been made a child of God. Don't settle for being a servant. Don't settle for being a servant. Ask God to teach you and show you what it means to be his kid, his favorite kid. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, let it do what you have intended for it to do by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.